Amen. Hey, before we jump into this, I just want to let you know with uh, with all the that's going on with, with COVID and election, and some of you just have some real job situations and and financial difficulties that have arisen out of some of all that we've dealt with this year. I just want to encourage you, not with just a, a cliche here, but the word that it's gonna be okay. Now that doesn't mean that it doesn't sometimes get hard, maybe even harder at times, but it's gonna be okay. That that's what is what the peace and hope of God offers us. You're not alone. You get to walk this with him. When Paul declares grace and peace many times on the people that he's writing to, I declare that on you today. His grace and peace to walk through anything that you might be dealing with this week in an election, ongoing in COVID, or maybe something in your world that is totally disconnected from those two things. The Lord be with you is what I want to pray on you. So would you bow and would you pray with me? Father, as we jump into this topic this morning, we want to first stop and recognize, Lord, that our great hope, joy, and focus is you. It's you we want to put our eyes on. It's you we want to declare as our Lord, our Savior, our God. It's you that we want to say, I'm with you, God, and I'll walk the direction you lead me. And in that, Lord, I believe you offer incredible stability. Lord, I believe that you offer incredible fulfillment. And you offer, as your word tells us, more life than we could even imagine. So, Father, grant that this morning. Would somebody, if it's just one this morning that doesn't feel that or their heart has been kind of forcing them to deny that, would this morning that be turned around? Would there be like a window thrown open where sunlight shines in? Would that be the word picture they see this morning with you shining into their life? Grace and peace upon each of us today, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, I want to tell you first this morning, uh, all the sermon notes we're going to be walking through uh, are at windoverhills.org slash bulletin. So uh, you're going to see some things flash on the screen, and they're going to be up there as long as I'm talking about them, and then they're going to go away. And you might be saying, hey, w- what was it he said there? What was that? windoverhills.org slash bulletin, and you can see the sermon notes as well as this week's bulletin with everything that's going on. So I encourage you, you can go to that now. You can follow along uh, if you'd like uh, during that time. In fact, I want to ask if we could take the lights up uh, just a bit here. I want to be sharing with you a few of the passages, and there's several of them, and so we won't have enough time to really work through in depth each of them. So use your sermon notes, or at very least your notes app on your phone, and write these down so that you can look at those this week. So uh, we're jumping into this topic, Christianity in an election year, and I'm telling you, it's not like over the last three weeks I've been sitting down writing this going, I am pumped. I'm pumped to deliver this one. But uh, I think it's important. I think it's important to us that we remember and we recognize who we're called to be in Christ in the midst of any situation at any time. And I can't really think in my years of actually engaging with elections. I'm 47, so, you know, it started at 18. I can't think of anything I've dealt with every four years that seems to be more contentious, even among believers of Christ, than presidential elections. Now we recognize the ballot is long this this time around. It's not just presidential, but we seem to focus most of our angst in that direction. 
So who are we to be in Christ? So here's how we're going to do it this morning. We're going to start off by uh, d- dividing up among political parties. So I need you to kind of read. No, we won't do that. Um, that would be really fun to watch for about two seconds. <laughs> and then there'd be weapons. So uh, we, we won't do that uh, this morning. Um, but what we are going to do is uh, we're going to go down the ballot uh, every situation. And I'm just going to tell you how you should vote this morning. No, I wouldn't do that either. Why? Because this is the Lord's spot, this pulpit, as I view This is God's words space. So really the question this morning is who should I be in Christ during this type of season? And what I want to do is I want to put some things in context for you, in biblical context, so that you, as you move forward, some of you have already voted, that's fine. um, But if you're moving forward and you'll go to the polls over the next, uh, what is it, Tuesday, that you put it within context of who we are in Christ. So if you have those sermon notes, take a look at them, and I'll follow through, windoverhills.org slash bulletin. Um, they'll be flashing up on the screen as well. I want to share with you three things this morning that I think are straight out of God's word for us just to remember as we focus on this. The overarching thing in this is keep elections in perspective. That's our overarching thought here. Keep elections, this one, in perspective. Here's what we're talking about. Here's the first thing. Um, You might already know this. You might go like, uh, duh, I know Tom. But let's make sure we hear this. The first thing we need to understand is that no platform, and we're thinking politically here, is perfect. No platform is perfect, right? So don't pretend so. We need to understand, first of all, that whatever political platform or whatever governmental system that's set up, there is none that is perfect. Like it could solve every issue out there. Right Now, we like to talk that way, and if we flip our radio dial, we'll hit a certain station that will say, you know, it, it only can be done this way, and there's no wrong in this, and then we'll flip another dial, and we're over here, and it's only right, and there's no wrong can be done. And so we tend to start camping out in one area where we would say from a political perspective, this is it, there's no wrong here. Or if there's wrong, it's very slight, and it's easy to overlook that, and we move forward. But the reality is, none of our parties are perfect. None of them. The longer we kind of live, and I'm, again, 47, so I I got to live through a few of these, the more my eyes are kind of wide open to just the gamut that's run on different issues and thoughts among political parties. So what I want to do is I want to tell you for a minute a little bit of the political landscape that was going on in the day of Christ, all right? So I'm going to just introduce you, if you don't already know, to just a little, you could call them political groups. They were more like the authority groups that had uh, kind of control and in some legislative control as well. And let's just share with you what was happening in Jesus' day. The first group was known as the Sadducees. Um, the Sadducees, now, all of the Sadducees were religious leaders, and so all the religious leader had some interest in what we call the law, or the law of the Old Testament, or what we call the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, right? And so you might have re- read that before, and you might remember that section that is the law, shows up in the Pentateuch, really, the first five books of the Bible. We're kind of introduced to the journey to the law at the beginning in Genesis, Then we actually get the law and we see how it's starting to be lived out. Read the rest of the Old Testament. You will see constantly how the law interacts. In fact, the law becomes so significant that they would actually view and see the law as if you follow the law, 
then you are engaging with the real presence of God. Now, remember, we actually talked about in our last series, when the Spirit of God would come, he would come to certain people at certain times. He would leave at certain people at certain times. But the law was always with them. They always could interact and follow the law. And so this was prominent, central. So the Sadducees, they would be what we might call in more of a, 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 a dictionary definition, they would have been more liberal to the law. Now, don't for a second start translating the word liberal to whatever you think now. You know, you probably said, ah, see those Democrats. You know, that's not what we're talking about. The, the definition here is just accepting different opinions or willing to change. That's just a textbook definition there. The Sadducees would look at the law of the Old Testament, and what they would say is, man, it's been a long time. In fact, it's been 400 years at the time of Christ where we've not seen a significant movement of God. And the Sadducees started to look at the law, and they started to interpret the law differently. They, they started to look at the law with different eyes. They started to ask questions. Is the Messiah coming? Is this like a real person, the Messiah? Are we talking about a new time period that's coming? Um, in fact, some of the Sadducees started to ask the question, is this Roman occupation, this, you know, because the Roman Empire ran the land in the day of Jesus, is this Roman Empire actually bringing in Greek culture? We called it Hellenization, if you remember from history class, right? Is this Greek savior, or, or excuse me, is this Greek culture like part of our savior? So they started to view Messiah differently and started to think in different terms. Now, there was another group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees would be what we'd call traditionalist. They would look at the law of the Old Testament and they would be like, we're not changing a thing. We're not changing anything we've understood up till now. Any way we interpreted it, that is the way we're continuing on. In fact, they would go so far with it that they'd say, you know, there's a few little, maybe call them loopholes, or there's a few little slight areas that doesn't seem like the law covers. So what we will do is, in our intellect, and in our deep understanding of the law, we're going to fill in the gaps with our best education, religious education of what God would really want to happen in these situations. And so they would add upon it. They were such traditionalists here, they were adverse to change. In fact, they were protectors of the law is what they were actually known as. Actual title, protector of the law. Can you imagine what the Pharisees would have thought of the Sadducees' view? And what the Sadducees would have thought of the Pharisees? Now, they had to function together. I mean, they had different roles in the temple. They were all religious leaders that they needed to do. But very different views of the law. Then you had this group of, uh, called the Zealots. It shows up a couple times in Scripture. Uh, much more if you want to actually read the history uh, there, read uh, kind of commentary to the Bible. And we find that these, these zealots, they were revolutionists. They were revolution. What they would do is they would take the law, and they actually would look at the law, and they'd say, the law is giving us permission to actually act upon some type of change that has to take place. And you can imagine the, the Roman Empire had kind of taken over the land there. And so their dominant group that they wanted to revolt against, of course, was this Roman Empire. And so that's how they viewed that the law was instructing them and telling them that they needed to be active in some type of action or force. And so that's what they spent their time doing. We actually don't see it show up a ton in the Bible. A couple little things in the book of Acts 
uh, if, you're, if you're kind of sensitive to this understanding, you would pick up on. But if you read first century history and you see some non-biblical writers, you'll see like the zealots, they were constantly involved in these little uprisings. Often were squelched, but they were constantly involved in these little things where they would cause disruption all because they kind of wanted to overthrow. Why? Because they believed the law was instructing them to do this because the law needed to be, the law of the Old Testament needed to be their law of the land for everyone. And then we talked about the Roman Empire. Throw them in. They are secular. They could care less about the Jewish Christian beliefs, and they are dictatorial. They are basically, we're in charge. What we say goes. They had expanded into this region. They would continue to expand, if you know your history, uh, for a while here. Uh, they basically, when they would come in, they would actually come in and they'd kind of say this, hey, whatever you're doing, that's fine, as long as it doesn't become a problem for us. Your religion, that's fine. Just don't let it become a problem for us. If it starts to become a problem for us, we will take quick and decisive action against you. If there's anything we eventually view as you trying to come against the Roman Empire in some way, that's treason, and that will actually put you on a cross. And so you can imagine how many zealots might have ended up on crosses. And so when Jesus comes into the picture, you can see Jesus was a problem. He's a problem to the Roman Empire because he was starting to be declared as somebody who was ushering in a kingdom, and kingdom was big talk, to use the kingdom phrase, because there was one kingdom, it was the Roman Empire. You can see Jesus, uh, there was a little bit of an issue to the zealots because we see that he actually preaches and teaches something that looks very different than any type of forceful overthrow. He was a problem to the Pharisees because he actually, I mean, he used the term where he started to call the Pharisees legalist. In fact, there's one particular time when he tells the Pharisees that you're twice the sons of hell. That's pretty strong language. He was a problem uh, even to the Sadducees who probably started to jump on board a little bit with a few words here or there that Jesus would say, I came to fulfill the law or things like that. But clearly when he started to get the Messiah title, a person, and he started to claim himself as Messiah, that was a problem with the, uh, the Sadducees who had kind of moved on from that concept entirely. This is this political landscape that's going on in Jesus's day. Now, you can be smart enough to draw some type of parallels to the distinct differences of how people believe we should be run and governed on how different believers even think or how they interact with more of dominant authority or political parties or groups such as this as well. The question for us was, what was Jesus? Where did he put himself here? Now, people like to give a knee-jerk response, you know, like we say, like, ah, let's vote for Jesus, this, like, right in Jesus, you know. Um, he's not running. Um, I, I don't think he's ever going to run, so that's not an option. And he also didn't stay away from these groups entirely at all. In fact, we actually see him engaging with all of these groups. You might say, yeah, negatively. He always, you know, harped on them. Well, he did a lot. But if you look back, you'll actually see Jesus interacted with these people calmly even more neutral as well. In fact, we actually find that the Pharisees, Jesus had great hope with the Pharisees. You want to know why? Because the Pharisees didn't hole up in the temple. They were out with the people every day. That was their job, to be with the people. 
But you can see Jesus' frustration comes out when, say, you took something wonderful and beautiful, like the kingdom of God, we'll talk about that in a minute, and you have twisted and you've turned it into just a set of rules to which you have added upon. You've just made it something that's dead and horrible. But Jesus interacted with all of these groups. So what was Jesus? I guess you could say, really, he was nothing, not on this political landscape, not on this religious leader landscape at all. But what really was he? Take a look at Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. It says, after John was put in prison, you remember John the Baptist, he was kind of that forerunner of Jesus. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming, get this, the good news of God, the gospel. That means good news. He says, the time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Like Jesus, and we get this same passage in the book of Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus comes in. He is saying, repent and believe in the gospel because the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is here. Now, we've talked about at length. The kingdom of God, the understanding that we're not talking about heaven eternal, one day you'll get there, right? But the real presence of God available to you every day to live out this thing called becoming a follower of Christ. The real God available to us right here, right now. And Jesus is proclaiming this. Like what we can look and say, what is Jesus? Jesus is a kingdom of God proclaimer. That's his number one focus. The number one thing he's about. In fact, there might be some times if you were to kind of put this all together where you could say, could Jesus navigate as a, a Sadducee? Maybe to some, some degree. Could he have navigated as a Pharisee? Probably to some degree, right? As a zealot, I don't know so much. I don't see Jesus as a, a forceful guy like that. And certainly not the secular of the Roman Empire. But what we do know is Jesus' number one priority, whatever he might, however avenues he might have worked in, is to usher in the kingdom of God, to be a proclaimer of the kingdom of God, to actually invite people to experience the real presence of God and what God has to offer their life. Now, listen, we talk about it in terms of everybody welcome, everybody can have that today. But in Jesus' day, not so. When Jesus was opening the kingdom of God to people who were poor or destitute or outcast, the disenfranchised, this was new. And Jesus saying, that is my primary role. That is it. You know, as a believer, I don't think anything's changed there. For you, for me, our primary role as a believer in Christ is to usher in the kingdom of God to people's lives, to invite people to experience the real presence of God and what Christ has to bring their life. That is our primary goal. You can be a Republican. You can be a Democrat, an independent, uh, you know, whatever you want to be on the political landscape. Your number one priority in life as a believer in Christ is to usher in the kingdom of heaven to someone's life. Here's what I want to uh, remind you in this, in this point your passion for Christ cannot be outknown by your passion for party. And I use the phrase outknown very carefully because you can go around and you can say as much as you want, oh, Christ is number one. I just don't talk about that as much as these other things. And I would scratch my head and say, well, why the heck not? Why wouldn't 
Why would not ushering the kingdom of heaven be this dominant thing that I would want to share about, to love people into, to offer to other people? Your passion for Christ cannot be outknown by your passion for party. Read it again. Notice we're not saying you should have no place in politics. You can, have, you can be passionate about politics. But your passion for Christ can't be outknown by that. Here's the second thing I want to share with you this morning. Your Christianity is not dependent, get this, on religious freedom. So don't live in fear. Now, I know some of you just in your head went, whoa, what? What? Some of you are like, I mean, that has been a dominant fight for religious freedom. And notice I'm not saying uh, religious freedom is not good. I want it just the same as you want it. In fact, I, I might get a little vocal and push a little hard that we would have that. But at the end of the day, you've got to understand your Christianity is not dependent on that religious freedom. So don't live in fear. Don't live on fear today. Don't live in fear for what you think or project or suppose might come. Your Christianity is not dependent on that. Little history lesson, you probably know this, but the, the moral majority was launched in 1979. Jerry Falwell Sr., uh, you might know the name Jerry Falwell Jr. more now, but Jerry Falwell Sr. launched this in 1979. And the focus was basically that they wanted in this moral majority, they wanted to enter into the political world with a very strong evangelical focus. And in this, they would hope, hope to do this, maintain Christian concepts of moral law through legislative avenues. That was kind of the focus when this launched. Here was the reason it, it launched. There was this strong, strong pushback from Jerry Falwell to Jimmy Carter's interview in Playboy magazine. That was just seen at the time, I mean, just such taboo that, that, a, 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 that a, a sitting president would do that, that this was the time that it felt like it needed to be launched. But the focus was to maintain Christian concepts of moral law through legislative avenues. Falwell once said this about the moral majority, all Christian growth hinges on religious freedom. I want to share with you, that's not a statement I believe. It's not a statement I believe is biblical. And I say that as one that has no problem with the evangelical world wanting to be a part of politics and wanting to be in there. But when we start to kind of shift to a point where our involvement in that, where we feel like it is absolutely, my Christianity is dependent upon that or is dependent on what happens on November 3rd of this year or in any year, that's a difficulty. In fact, that's a message that the Bible is not sharing with us. In fact, if you remember your history, the first century Christians living in the Roman Empire, they were converting both Jews and Gentiles to Christianity. And it's not like they had, it's not like they were under deep persecution right away to live out their faith. The Roman Empire was basically saying, look, I'm fine with it. Just don't make it a problem to us, all right? So keep it, you know, keep it behind closed doors or quiet or whatever, you know. Certainly, we don't want any of those zealots doing anything. It's okay as long as you don't cause a problem for us. 
Well, after AD 64, that all changed. If you remember, uh, Rome was burned down. Nero blamed the Christians for that. Many think that Nero started the fire himself so that he could blame someone else. The Christians became that scapegoat. So after that period of time, persecution got real fast. And we actually find in those first couple centuries, up to about the, the beginning of the fourth century, that persecution was strong and heavy. But what do we know about Christianity? It spread. It spread like gangbusters. It spread everywhere in, in the area that those followers of Christ started to disperse themselves out to. There was a church that was launched and formed in all those areas, even in the midst of persecution. Now, hear me right. I'm not advocating persecution. I'm not actually saying, let's return to some of those early monastic movements when they, they went and lived in caves and denied themselves anything and sometimes even whipped and beat themselves so they would feel pain and difficulty so that they could be closer to God. None of that makes sense to me either. But what we're saying this morning is your Christianity isn't dependent on religious freedom. If it happens, what a blessing. What a blessing to live in this country and have that. It's wonderful. We should never take that for granted. If it disappears on us one day, if we go to a country and God calls us to minister or to share in another country that doesn't have that, then your Christianity is not limited there either. Your love for God, your following of God, your ushering in the kingdom as we talked about in the first point is still available even then. Let me share with you some passages that we like to use sometimes um, and, and let's just talk about what's going on. The first one's found in 2 Corinthians. Paul is actually the author. He says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. This means like our eyes are open when we turn to the Lord. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled uh, contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Uh, what we like to do in a passage like this, and there's several others that use the word freedom, is we like to, on July 4th Sunday, we like to read something like this to say, where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. And we kind of connect it to our patriotic freedom, our freedom that's given to us by our, our governmental system. And man, we're so blessed to have that in our country. But that's not at all what Paul's talking about. Uh, Paul's actually talking about that there is a freedom that comes to you when you engage in a life with God. There's a freedom that comes. He's actually talking about two different freedoms. If you want to go and read more in that passage, one is freedom from the law. That the, the burden of the law, which Jesus came, fulfilled, uh, and moved on. And now there's this new covenant in Christ to follow. You have freedom from that law. The second freedom is freedom from sin. Like Paul actually believed that there is this weight and bondage in sin. In our postmodern culture today, uh, we're starting to not believe that. We're starting to almost believe there's really no such thing as the word sin, right? Or there's no real good definition for it. Well, Paul certainly believed there was. And he said you get freedom from sin when you have, engage in a life in Christ. This is the freedom Paul talks about over and over and over. Listen, you got to understand, he is writing this during a time where some of the more oppressive Roman officials were in charge. 
So he's certainly not comparing it to his freedom across the board that they enjoy from any citizen or nationalistic standpoint. He is talking about the freedom that comes in Christ. You and I have that same freedom. No matter what our situation, no matter where we're at, that freedom is available to us. And we should always live in that confidence. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Already establishing what we're talking about in freedom, and Paul is writing this as well. And the book of Galatians is even more focused on freedom from the law. But he says, look, you didn't get that freedom so that you could say, like we love to say as Americans, I'm, I'm free, I can do what I want, right? He actually says, we use that freedom to serve one another. Like that freedom is available so that you would go and you would be a blessing to others, that you would serve others, you would show compassion on others. And as I said in the first one, that you would usher in the kingdom of heaven to others. You have that freedom to do that. And that's how Paul is telling us, use your freedom to this end. The book of Psalm in 119 says, I will walk about in freedom. Why? For I have sought out your precepts. Like the writer is actually saying, this may be David, it may be Ezra, it may be Daniel, not totally sure. But whoever's writing that, you probably recognize those names, is saying there is freedom that comes from following God's way. When you follow God's way. Like if I listen to that and I read that, like I actually believe that as believers and where our focus is, that we can have the freedom, all the freedom that is given to us as American citizens, which we should cherish, and not be experiencing freedom because we're not following God's ways. Like our number one focus would be to follow God's ways and understand the freedom God offers us in a relationship with his son. So this is what I want you to remember this morning. Your pursuit of God cannot be, and I know this word doesn't exist, your freedom of God cannot be out-efforted by your pursuit of freedom. Your pursuit of God, like pursuing God, it can't be outdone by your pursuit of freedom. Your pursuit of God has got to be daily, waking up every morning pursuing God. Listen, I push on men that I talk to all the time. Men, I'm discipling them. Get up and read God's word for 15 minutes every day. Is that a magic formula? No, I'll never pretend it is. But get up every morning and start your day reading God's word for 15 minutes. It doesn't matter if you read five verses. Read for 15 minutes, write down a thing or two that hits you, and then take that into your day. And I've told you before, I get such a low percentage of men that ever take me up on that. Well, I mean, nobody tells me, no, Tom, I'm not going to do that. But it's so difficult to put that discipline into our life. But there's other pursuits of our life, other passions. Maybe it's political we're talking about that, or maybe it's other, that are so easily knee-jerk for you and I to give passion to without much effort. And we throw passion, and we'll jump into that, and it'll cost us, and we'll sacrifice greatly. But the most important thing is our pursuit of God pursuing God every single day. Here's a third thing. I want to remind you, the church's role and the government's role are not the same thing. So don't confuse them. Don't confuse what the role of the government and the role of the church is. 
The moral majority disbanded nine years. In, eight, in, in 1989, disbanded. Why? Because it wasn't very effective. They didn't really like what they were doing. No, because they had felt like they accomplished their goals and they had legislated morality into our nation. Well, we've lived a lot of years since 1989, <laughs> you and I, and we would probably at this point, as would Jerry Falwell Sr. if he was alive, say, I might have jumped the gun a little bit on that one as we see so many other things that have gone different directions in our morality, not just in our secular culture, but even among believers in Christ. So the church's role, the government's role, they're not the same thing. We can't confuse them. There's this great passage in Romans chapter 30, uh, 13. Um, I'd love if we spent two hours just focusing on this, but we don't have the time. So let me just read the first verse and encourage you, go back and read the next 13 verses. 1 through 14 is the section in Romans chapter 13. Let everyone be subject to the ruling authorities, for there is no authority except that which has established the authorities that exist have been established by God. We either love this verse or we hate this verse. Or more likely, we either love this verse or we ignore this verse, right? Somebody's in office that we really believe strongly in. We voted for him. You know, we're on board. We'll use this verse to talk to other people all day long, right? I'll tell you, hey, you know, you got to get in line. <laughs> Romans 13 right here. But if it's not my candidate, I don't want to hear this. Don't tell me this, you know. And if you do, I'm going to find some creative rebuttal, you know, some way, you know, I'm going to find that obscure verse somewhere, and I'm going to read just a quarter of it because that's what helps me and, uh, and tell you how you're wrong. I mean, that's kind of how we function. But Paul, listen, I just told you the time period he's writing this in. Clearly, he's not saying we have incredible godly leaders in the Roman Empire that are leading us right now. And I would really encourage you, you know, listen, get on board, you know, open your eyes. These guys... This guy's got it going on. Not at all. The exact opposite would be true. And yet he speaks in this way. Now, it's clear, Paul talks later, uh, that we are never to deny our faith in Christ. There are injustices that we're always supposed to fight for, even if the law would say otherwise. We find those. So you don't have to go wonder, necessarily. You can get in there and read a little bit more later. But you've got to understand a couple things. One, we believe in the free will of God, meaning we've talked to you before that the providence of God, when we talk in those terms, doesn't necessarily mean theologically that God ordains and dictates every little step you will take the rest of your life, and you have no choice in the matter. God gives you free will, right? And in that, his providence is that he would give you free will. And sometimes you choose well for him, and sometimes you don't choose well for him. Sometimes our leaders choose well for him, and sometimes our leaders don't choose well for him. What Paul is saying, look, ultimately, this whole Christianity thing was not really designed so that you would constantly live in conflict with everyone, especially those who are above you. We, we often think of the government in our terms of maybe who's going to be our president but our governing authorities could be your boss at work as well. Could be the person who sets policies in the hobby you're in. There's all kinds of things. And Paul is saying, look, we're actually, this Christianity thing is designed to figure out how to flow in unity and peace as well. There's another passage uh, that 
is written a little later. Take a look at this. Paul's writing this. I urge then, uh, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And just so you understand who all people is, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Paul's saying, look, I want you to pray for everyone. I want you to intercede on behalf of everyone, everyone. I want you to offer thanksgiving. You might be like, hey, I'll pray for my president, you know, or I'll pray for that candidate, or I'll pray for him, even though I don't like him. Well, I'm not offering thanksgiving for them. And Paul actually believes that we, we have this calling as believers to be lifting them up in that way for kings and all those in authority. Why? Because this helps us live a peaceful and quiet life in godliness and holiness. And Paul has this concept and this belief that maybe even sometimes feels foreign to us. It certainly feels foreign if you would just, you know, be watching Will of Fortune and you hit the commercial time. And for the next three and a half minutes, you just get to listen to the political ads and how horrible each person is. That's what every ad tells us. Oh, that candidate is terrible. Then his opponent, that candidate. I'm like, oh, man, everybody's terrible. Well, that would be what we believe in those three and a half minutes. And Paul would come on in his commercial, and he would say, hey, guys, let's pray for them. Let's intercede on their behalf. Let's give thanksgiving for both of our candidates, things that don't always make sense to us. Why? Because that's the role of the church. That's the role of believers. When you go and you vote on, on Tuesday, and I hope you do if you haven't already, please do. Please vote, right? But when you go, it is your government, your country asking your opinion for that second to vote in. And so you get to go and you get to offer your opinion. I'm telling you, there's people around the world, they would love the chance to go wait in your hour or two hour, whatever it will take line, to offer their opinion in the form of a ballot and check in a box on Tuesday like you'll be able to do. But Paul is just saying, but the role of the church is a bit different. The role of the church is that we're going to be ushering the kingdom of heaven. The role of the church is that we're going to be praying for you. We're going to lift you up. We're going to offer petitions. Listen, I've been around the church world long enough now. I've been around groups of Christians where, like, I've been collectively in a prayer group, and most of them are Republicans. Or I've been in a, a prayer group where most of them are Democrats. And it's amazing. Like, we are really, we are really good about saying, let's pray for our president. Let's pray for our leaders when it's the person we wanted. But it's a challenge to go the other way. But Paul says, look, the role of the church is not the same as the role of the government. The role of the church, you're going to love people. You're going to pray for people. You're going to intercede on people. You're going to offer thanksgiving for people. You're going to look for ways to live peaceful and holy lives. You're going to usher in the kingdom of God where you're looking and you don't see the kingdom of God present. That is what we're going to be about. That is the role of the church. Matthew 28, just in case we're unclear of this, says it really clear. Jesus' really last command he puts on his people. He says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is really clear about what the church should go be about. 
He says, look, church, and if you if you just for a second, you don't understand this, the church, don't look around and go, the church is not your paid staff. It is every believer, every person who says they are a follower of Christ. We are collectively the church. And Jesus is saying, here's your job. Go to others. Make disciples. Disciple them. Build into them. Baptize them. That's a symbol of transformation. And he says, look, I am with you always for this purpose. I'm going to be with you and empower you for this purpose. We don't get anything like that for our kind of uh, our political world necessarily. Well, certainly we're supposed to take Christ into anything we do. But we get this clear directive from Christ. I am with you always for this purpose of going to people, discipling people, baptizing people. I'm with you. In fact, one of our goals for next year as Pastor Anson and I were talking is that we would actually disciple you so that you could disciple others. Not disciple you so that you go away and you go like, hey, I know, I know a lot more about the Bible. We hope you do. But disciple you specifically so at the end of it we could turn you loose to turn and then disciple someone else. Why? Because that is a role of the church. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And so don't confuse the church's role and the government's role. They're not the same thing. We respect our governing authorities we follow them. We pray for them. We intercede on their behalf. But the role of what we're supposed to be about as Christians looks different. Now, you may be one that loves politics, and you want to be in politics. In fact, you might grow up and say, look, I want to be a politician. I want to be involved in that. Great. Go do that. Please go do that. But your call to go to people, to make disciples, to disciple them, it's still the same. It still is set above even your role as a politician or your role as a teacher or your role as a coach or and on and on and on because that is what we're to be about as believers and Christians. God's purpose for his church cannot be overtaken by his purpose for government. The purpose and the role of the church is significant. And if I had a critique on the contemporary church, my critique would be we've lost sight of that purpose and that calling. And we want to challenge ourselves, especially in 2021, collectively as a church, that that would be our purpose. So here's the takeaway this morning. Love government, love politics. I hope you do. Like, like the, the opposite of that, to say, ah, oh, I just don't like this policy, I don't like this government stuff, to withdraw entirely from that, I don't think is a great avenue either. To know what our country is about, to know how our country works, to know how God might even work within that significant things. Love government, love politics, but love God's kingdom more. Make sure God's kingdom is the absolute. Evaluate yourself. Is it clear on that? I mean, you can get really practical in evaluating. You can look at your last, you know, 50 Facebook posts, and you get a little bit of an idea, right, where your passions lie. Love the kingdom more, and let it show. Let it actually show. Let people see that you love the kingdom more. Don't leave them guessing, wondering. Tell them about it. Certainly, that's what Jesus did. Certainly, Paul and Peter took that and ran with that and shared that. Let it show. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you 
just for the opportunity to engage. Lord, and what's happening practically in our world right now, I'm going to remind ourselves who are to be in Christ. Lord, lead us out and guide us. May we put significant prayer towards the next couple days. And whichever way it swings, for our candidate, not. Father, would we continue that praying right along with it? And would we put that role of who we are as believers at the forefront to usher in the kingdom, to go out, to disciple people, that we might see the growth of your kingdom. Father, you want to use us to that end. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen.